This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London, alongside Alex Steele over in New York. It is, of course, November the 8th. U.S. midterms are, elections are underway in the United States. Um, I thought today was going to be the kind of, the, the the big focus would be there. But but actually, there's a few other stories floating around as well, Alex, that have a meaningful impact on markets. Broadly, equities are higher. Sterling's bounced this afternoon on the back of a Bloomberg report suggesting that actually a breakthrough on Northern Ireland, a breakthrough on Brexit could be possible. And then we've got this this crypto story, which I'm still struggling to get my arms around. Oh, you're going to leave it to me. Nice one. Nice one. So apparently, the net net is that Binance is buying FTX.com. It's a crypto platform. Crypto's uh, platform's token, FTT, was under some heavy, heavy selling pressure after Binance said it was going to be selling some of uh, those tokens. So Binance sells the tokens, causes a nosedive for FTX. Investors panic, flee, moving their assets. It has a liquidity problem, and then Binance goes and buys it, but can walk away from the deal at any time. What? Yeah. Seems to be turning out quite well for Binance. There may have been... There was a kind of step before that. There was an article written last week. Um, I think it was on Coinbase talking about the idea that maybe there were some yes. concerns around Sam uh, Bankman-Fried's uh, hedge, effective hedge fund, um, at which which the article contended may have put too many of its assets into the to, into the FTX token. But but all of this basically has the the net result is that we are seeing significant consolidation in the crypto space when mm-hmm. it comes to exchanges. And, I, I, yeah. It's it's an amazing. If you thought the crypto was the wild wild west, this is exactly the kind of example of what we're talking about. Yeah, and then the most important news of the day for real, New York, the uh, Powerball is two point three billion dollars. Just explain that to a UK audience. Two point three, but you don't get that all at once, do you? You do not. So say you win it, and you're the this solo the winner. Let's just say yeah. two point three billion. Say you win it. If you take a lump sum, it's something like one point one two. And then the taxes take it out. You're looking at like six seventy-five million dollars ish, rough right. math. Um, you don't get it because you don't get the whole thing because the money actually isn't there yet. If you get it over twenty-nine years, which is your other option, and you kind of dole it out every year, then you wind up uh, getting the entire amount. I'm just, I'm just gonna. It's two point three billion dollars, guys. You could, you could walk that, home with six hundred seventy-five million dollars. So yeah, but sorry, give me the total amount. How much? Two point three bill. Two point three billion over twenty-nine years. Yes. Quite a lot of money every year. Anyway, uh, we'll park that for just a just, moment. Just we'll come back to there. it. It's just that, yeah. Um, yeah. At least you're not getting it in a in a crypto token. Um, <laughs> this this does <laughs> nice come one. in real US dollars. Um, we need to talk about all of these stories. So we need to talk about the midterms. We need to talk about what is happening with Brexit. And we need to talk about the, uh, the, the crypto story. We'll do all of that throughout the rest of the show. Let's kind of bring it all together, get some headlines. Here's Charlie Powell. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. As you mentioned, lots going on today. The UK and European Union are close to a major breakthrough in their months-long spat over post-Brexit trading rules in Northern Ireland, which has threatened at times to escalate into a full-blown trade war. Sources say the EU has been 
begun testing the UK's live database tracking goods moving from mainland Britain to Northern Ireland. If the bloc is satisfied, it could, just could, pave the way for an agreement on customs checks in the Irish Sea that are a major source of tension between the two sides. Rishi Sunak said to be considering how to respond to fresh bullying allegations against Cabinet Minister Gavin Williamson, whose appointment to the UK government's top team has raised questions about the Prime Minister's political judgment. Yesterday, The Guardian reported that Williamson had bullied a senior civil servant in the Ministry of Defence and told them to, quote, slit your throat while serving as a defence secretary under former Prime Minister Theresa May. Williamson had already been under pressure over a separate bullying claim from another Conservative MP. Simon Cowell's entertainment company has sold £108 million of bonds backed by the Got Talent televised talent shows in what the arranger of the debt says is the first securitization of royalties from a reality TV program. Cowell's Psycho Entertainment, as in Simon Company, there you have Psycho, work with White Oak Merchant Partners, a brokerage on the transaction. Music royalty asset banks have been around for decades. Simon Cowell, you recall, signed boy bands including Westlife and Five relatively early in his career, but he met with some of his most lucrative success with shows like American Idol and Britain's Got Talent, where he gained renown for his acerbic criticism of contestants. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Britain's Got Talent. Um, yeah, that's always been, well, certainly recently has been a bit of an issue, particularly on the political front. But anyway, we'll park that. Um, let's talk, Charlie, about what is happening with that first story that you brought us. The UK and the European Union apparently close to a big breakthrough. Um, when it comes to Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland Protocol, the training arrangement that exists between Ireland, the EU, Northern Ireland and the UK. This is about data sharing. And as Charlie said, this could be a major, major breakthrough. Ellen Milligan brought us the story on the Bloomberg. She brings it to us now. Ellen, how significant could this be? Walk us through what's being talked about. Well, it's all a bit nerdy, but it's really important. So bear with. The EU okay. has been asking for a long time um, to have access to real-time data, which basically gives them all the information um, on goods traveling from Great Britain to Northern Ireland into the EU single market. It's actually a requirement in the protocol that the UK must share this with the EU. Um, but it hasn't happened. It took a long time to get this database up and running. The EU wasn't happy with it for a long time. And for the first time, they have now started testing this database this week. And for the next few weeks, they're going to be seeing whether it meets their needs to um, make risk assessments to satisfy the integrity of the single market. And it's the first sign of progress in these talks. Um, who, how did this come about? Who broke the impasse on this? So talks restarted um, uh, last month between the EU and the UK after eight months of stalemate. And the first thing that the EU kept on saying, Sefcovic, Maris Sefcovic even said yesterday that um, access to this data is necessary to move the talks along. So it's a bit of movement from both sides. The UK has made yeah. tweaks that the, UK, the EU has requested, but the EU is now willing to test um, this database as well. And the, the important thing is, one of the big practical problems of the protocol is it causes disruption to trade within the UK. And with this data, the EU and the UK should be able to make an agreement 
on customs checks. Is this anything to do with the fact that we have a new Prime Minister in the form of Rishi Sunak, who seems to be taking um, for a Brexiteer, because that, that ultimately is his kind of bedrock, a more pragmatic approach to the EU? So the talks actually begun under Liz Truss, surprisingly so, because her rhetoric over the summer leadership bid was very anti-EU. She was playing up to the Brexit rhetoric of her party. I would say this is more a symptom of the technical talks that are happening in the mood music that has improved um, in the last couple of months. Something that actually Rishi Sunak is doing tomorrow is the government is giving an update on the situation in Northern Ireland where they haven't had a functioning government since February. Um, and they are expected to extend the time frame to an el- allow an election to happen. And that's Rishi Sunak giving himself more space to reach a deal on the protocol to persuade unionists to reform the government in time for the 25th anniversary of the peace deal in Northern Ireland. So after this, what are some of the outstanding issues and, and, and who has sort of the upper hand in them then? Yeah, it's really important to say that this is them closing in on a breakthrough on customs, but customs is just one issue in the protocol. So you've still got issues around um, tax breaks being applicable to Northern Ireland, particularly around VAT, for example. You've got the governance of Northern Ireland. The UK wants to scrap the role of the European Court of Justice. Um, For for the EU, that's non-negotiable. So there's major issues in, in play. And what Rishi Sunak has to balance is reaching a deal that prevents a trade war with the EU, reaching a deal that appeases the DUP, the Democratic Union Unionist Party, enough to be able to take its seats in the executive and reform a government in Northern Ireland, but also not compromise enough to upset the 80 or so members of the hardline uh, Brexit group in his party, the European Research Group, who will have real issue with him and cause him real internal problems if he does compromise too much. It's a really tricky balancing act. If he can keep all those plates spinning, where, how, how could this change the relationship between London and Brussels? As we say, the mood music has improved in the last couple of months. Not having the, the Northern Ireland Protocol is the last big hangover of Brexit. And by resolving this, a lot of other issues, for example, around the financial relationship between um, uh, the United Kingdom and the EU, Horizon, this big scientific program that's really important for researchers in the UK to have access to, these will be resolved too. I also think that the mood music we've heard recently that France and the UK is close to an agreement on channel crossings, that is really in part because of the mood mood music has changed, the relationship has become warmer. If there's any friction around the Northern Ireland Protocol um, going forward and talks break down again, it could really impact agreements like that and cooperation as well. All right, Ellen, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Ellen Milligan joining us there um, on all things Brexit. I mean, we mock it because it's still not over, but maybe this is a big deal. Like, maybe we're inching think, towards no, something think, being gen- final would be enormous. Genuinely, if if some sort of resolution can be found here, this is a huge deal yeah. for the UK. The UK, and Hugh Pell was talking about this today, the, the, the Bank of England's chief economist, just talking about what is happening in terms of the Brexit impact, talking about what's yes. happening in the labour market. This is still an ongoing factor that is holding back the UK economy at a point where it is really struggling 
with the inflationary narrative and productivity and growth. And Brexit is a factor in all of this. Any kind of resolution, any lowering of temperature between the, the EU and the UK could have could have a meaningful economic impact. Yes, yes, exactly. And then we get to stop talking about it. I mean, it's a win-win for everybody. Um <laughs> Stopping about talking about stop talking about it. We are very close <laughs> to being the end of the midterm elections here, um, and then we have two years to campaign until the presidential election in 2024. Lucky everybody. Um, it was a last-minute ditch to campaign. The uh, Democratic Party that looks to lose the House Senate is up for grabs. Um, brought out their heavy hitters over the last few days to really try and drive home, get out the vote, and really help turn out. Um, they weren't alone. Uh, former President Trump was also out there, along with former President Obama and current President uh, Joe Biden. Here's a little bit of what they've been talking about over the last few days. I'm here to ask you to vote. You have to get out. You have to vote. Democracy is literally on the ballot. The stakes are high. Our country has never been so bad as it is right now. Under my predecessor, the economy was in ruins. Let me tell you something, Pennsylvania. John has character, integrity. And he's going to be a hell of a good senator. The people of Pennsylvania are going to elect Dr. Mehmet Oz to the United States Senate. This is a defining moment for the nation. That uh, were former presidents and current president uh, Joe Biden talking about getting out the vote uh, on the eve of the midterm election. It is the day. We probably won't get the results for a while. We'll dig deeper into the horse race issue uh, throughout the show. But taking a look at the equity market, I mean, at one point, the Nasdaq was up almost 2%. Why? I have no idea. So let's bring in John Authors, who joins us from Bloomberg Opinion. Um, John, do you get the feeling that it's a buy the rumor, sell the news for the midterms? Are markets moving on something different? How are you reading the price action right now? Well, certainly the midterms have been treated as a bullish uh, as a bullish factor by a lot of people on the on the sell side, um, uh, you know, Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley being a particularly prominent um, prominent example of somebody who's suggesting that the midterms should give a, a boost. Uh, the number of charts I've seen in the last few days pointing out accurately enough that the third year of a presidential term tends to be by far the best compared to the first, second, and fourth. People are looking at that. Um, the one point that I'm worried about is is um, the notion that gridlock is good for markets is subtler than that. It tends to be good for bond markets unless there is a kerfuffle over the debt limit. Uh, it's not quite so clear to me that gridlock is great for uh, stock markets. There can be times when coherent governance <laughs> matters and helps. Yeah, and also, John, we are potentially heading into a recession. Now, normally, yeah. you would see fiscal policy swinging into action at that point to try and maybe soften the blow of such a recession. Now, the automatic stabilisers will certainly be there. They're not as great in the United States as they are here in Europe. Will mm. government be there to help the American people if this if this recession is a tough one? Um, it certainly becomes less likely if you have... Uh, a Republican House, plenty of, I mean, it's obviously a huge economic uh, debate, but Barack Obama was really uh, shellacked, I think was his own word, by the Tea Party wave of Republicans in his first midterms. Mm -hmm. And that led to what was probably uh, a serious mistake, which was uh, continuing tight fiscal policy and continuing 
loose monetary policy, which led to all the horrible things we now know about widening inequality uh, and the kind of uh, the kind of slump for a large part of the country that they found intolerable. Um, so yes, there's a, certainly a risk that something like that happens again. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot depends on exactly how. Um, Republicans choose to take their new responsibilities. So if you have, in some ways, mm-hmm. I mean, we all of us have deep opinions about a lot of things that are going on in politics. From the narrow realm of what I write about, Donald Trump saying that Mitch McConnell should be impeached if he didn't go along with refusing to raise the debt ceiling was very alarming. If, if he has as much sway with the parties as he seems to, and they take that kind of attitude, then that's very dangerous. And that, and that's the one great concern I do. I do. Well, I mean, I think that that's what we've learned, that, that Trump can be very dangerous to markets, either to the upside <laughs> or downside, depending yeah. on, on, on yeah. things that transpire. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. So in some off-the-record conversations that I've been having with Wall Streeters is that what they really are looking at is not today, but 2024, and sort of then what mm. today means about 2024, and like what a Trump run means for 2024, et cetera. Are you hearing anything along those along those lines? And like how do and, and how do you invest for that? I don't know, but maybe it just means more volatility and uncertainty. It's very difficult. I don't think you would find people believing that once once Trump won in 2016, very quickly the uh, the the narrative took hold that Trump is good for growth. Trump is good for growth. Um, and he wasn't bad for growth, at least for the, the first year, he was pretty good for it. Um, I'm not sure you would get that degree of confidence now because, uh, again, I'm not the first person to talk about it, the degree of polarization is so deep that that makes, that, you know, that, that creates risks and problems uh, for more or less everything. Um, I think if you want to, um, uh, the other thing that I think could get very interesting is that uh, I imagine if the results are as bad for the Democrats as they appear to likely to be, that Joe Biden probably will have to make some announcement that he's not running again fairly soon. Uh, and then you'll be in the very unusual situation where both parties, yeah, only, only uh, even even though there is an incumbent there, both parties are are holding uh, uh, what are very contested uh, primary campaigns at the same time. And there's, it's not at all obvious who the Democrats would put forward. That that could uh, we could get back to scares over people like Elizabeth Warren or or, or whatever quite quite easily, and that that would be very uh, uncertain for the market. What does this mean for the Fed? Do you think? Very little, um, one would think. Uh, I mean, they, they have, and that is the, the big reason for arguing that the midterms don't matter as much as they used to, because the Fed is just such a dominant institution at this point. I tend to think that this, in, that the, the problems we have inflation at the moment are far more to do with uh, monetary policy than with fiscal policy, which means they'll need to be fixed with monetary policy. Um, Jerome Powell doesn't need to be uh, need to be reappointed until after the next presidential election, and he probably wants to retire anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I'm, with any luck, the Fed is reasonably insulated. 
if you had, and I happen to this uh, this being raised in the same way that the debt ceiling is being raised, if you had any suggestions about changing the Fed as an institution or fiddling with its independence, and this is one of the things that did for Liz Truss, that once you start even mentioning that that genie is out of the bottle, mm-hmm. um, it makes the markets much less willing to trust you on anything else. If there was some, if that came into question, then that would be a concern. As it stands, I think it shouldn't help the Fed, shouldn't, sorry, it shouldn't affect the Fed all that much. And I mm-hmm. think basically the Fed will need to respond to fiscal policy as it goes along. So if the fiscal policy is somewhat more small C conservative, um, that will probably give them somewhat more ability to to pivot or to ease earlier than otherwise. But, but that's, yeah. that's about as far as it goes. I'm going to ask an unfair question. Do you think mm. that whatever incoming government that we do have learned mm. anything from the UK? Uh, yes. I, 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 I'm thinking about that rather a lot. I, 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 I don't think the argument is that, that they should learn is that low-tech small state is necessarily a bad idea. Um, uh, or, because I think it was more about the appallingly bad way in which those policies were were introduced. But it does suggest, and this is what I think is most alarming, and Narayana Kachalakota, uh, formerly of the Minneapolis Fed, wrote a piece for Bloomberg Opinion on this. Um, the ultimate reason that Liz Truss was felled completely was that there was uh, a problem with fiscal stability, with, sorry, with financial stability, that uh, that UK pension funds had far greater liabilities than were realised and that we were very close to a complete meltdown. That was what did for her. Uh, and that was what showed that you needed to be much more careful in the way you moved with any economic policy. There is... Every reason to fear that there is that, that there are traps like that lurking in the states as well. Uh, wow. I, I don't know because if I knew if, if people knew where they were, we would be doing something about them. Fair point. But that is definitely that is definitely the main lesson that the rest of the world has taken from uh, you know the, 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 the tragedy of Liz Trust that that if there is some serious flaw in financial regulation out there. That could stop you from doing whatever you want to do. And, of course, the, the pension mix-up was not this trust's fault in any way. It was about you know, areas of regulation that went back a decade. If we get a bounce off the midterms, could it fade quickly if we find ourselves in a situation where we have hot CPI on Thursday? If inflation mm. is strong, will anything that comes out of the midterm be very, very transitory? Uh, I, I don't see the midterms being anything like as important as CPI. No, um, I, it just doesn't have. Um, there's going to be a Democrat with the power of veto for another two years, and that limits. And it's not as though there were any big policies that Biden was planning for the next two years anyway. So I, I don't see how it can possibly be as big a deal as CPI. Mm-hmm. Um if we actually got a positive surprise on CPI for the first time in a very long time, that would completely swamp whatever response 
theories to whatever we you know we learn tonight and over the days ahead. That, do, that, do you that's think though, John? The big this week. Do you think that Sorry? the that the market read from the CPI is going to be what we expect? And I go back to what happened on Jobs Day. You get a seemingly yeah. hot number. And yet you have the opposite reaction of what you would have thought. I mean, the dollar in yields didn't seem to make any sense. There's been persistent dollar weakness, which makes me scratch my head. And I wonder if like a reaction function in the market is changing or what? Well, you could also add to that the last CPI day, if you remember, which is a horrible high. I can't remember yesterday, man. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about it. And the the S&P tanked by, from memory, about 2% of the open. And then just went up like a rocket from there. It obviously triggered, triggered a lot of algo buyers to, to, to buy at the, at the level it touched. Um, could something like that happen again? Yes. But I, I do think one of the most plausibly positive arguments, and I'll pick another Bloomberg Opinion co- um, colleague, uh, Connor Sen has a piece today suggesting that the unemployment figures, by staying as good as they are, really do increase the chance uh, of a of a genuinely soft landing. That the fact that the, that the the employment market stays as strong as it is is making it easier uh, to deal with inflation um, by by higher rates. That this could yet. Yeah, the, the the way they soft the landing for the sorry, sorry, John, a soft landing for the economy yeah. or a soft landing for the financial markets? Both. Hmm. Um, but I think Connor was particularly talking about the uh, the economy. I mean, soft landing. <laughs> We're already yeah. down more than twenty five percent. If you go by sixty forty, this year has been worse than two thousand and eight. Okay, um, but in terms of how much further below, how much more room below there is. You, you can imagine a serious recession and some implosion like what happened to British gilts, and we could go a lot further down. That that becomes much less likely if we really do have an economic soft plan. John, it's always a pleasure to catch up. Really useful insight, really useful thoughts on what is happening. Uh, the, the midterms are certainly front and centre, but it won't be too long before we're talking about CPI Thursday. Uh, John Authors, thank you very much indeed. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Uh, Let's turn our focus now to U.S. equities for a moment. Um, All across the board, stocks are rallying. Risk sentiment is up. You have underperformance in the bond market. Yields higher, particularly in the seven-year and the 10-year. They're up by about seven basis points. Um, I'm just checking in on the dollar. The dollar is uh, still underperforming here. You have the risk on currencies like the Swedish Krona, Australian dollar. Are really leading the way in the G10 space as we wait for the midterm election results, which I bet we won't get for a while. Um, before we get to that story, let's get some other headlines here with Charlie Pell. I thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. Former Bank of England Governor Mark Carney says renewable energy assets are primed for an era of growth as they emerge as the answer to both energy security risks and efforts to fight climate change. In an interview with Bloomberg Television at the COP27 Climate Summit in Egypt, Carney said the, quote, smart money is following an absolute wall of opportunity in just rolling out clean energy at scale. 
The owner of the Primark budget fashion chain has unveiled its first ever share buyback. It's a 500 million pound program and it's warning of substantial and volatile cost inflation in the current fiscal year. Associated British Foods, which also owns sugar, agriculture and ingredients divisions, says it will buy back the shares this financial year. It also raised its dividend by 8%. Associated shares in London today up by 2.2%. Citigroup is increasing holiday allowances for UK staff, the latest bid by a bank to improve its working culture. Beginning in January, new employees will get 27 days of annual leave, increasing to 28 after two years and 29 after five years. This according to an internal memo seen by Bloomberg. Previously, staff got 23 days for their first five years, which then increased to 25. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right, Charlie Pellet, thank you so much. So, uh, like I mentioned, it is the U.S. midterm elections today. And two years from now, we get the next U.S. president election. Today really matters, and it matters in particular because of the signal it may send for 2024, but also because control of the Senate. It appears that Republicans will most likely pick up control of the House. Um, the Senate, which makes up of uh, 50, 100 senators, um, two from each state, and then the tiebreaker, the vice president. Uh, it's a thin, thin, razor-thin margin for the Democrats, as it is with Kamala Harris, the vice president, being the swing vote. So how much see, how many seats can Republicans actually pick up becomes a real question in terms of who is going to govern, the, govern Congress. Now, we can see this particular issue play out in a couple states. One is Pennsylvania, where you have John Fetterman, as well as Dr. Mehmet Oz, competing for each other. John Fetterman had a stroke earlier in the year, and his, uh, his popularity or his voting lead has diminished since then. The other state you have to pay attention to is what's happening in Georgia. You have a race between Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker. Um, controversy very much in the spotlight for Herschel Walker. So let's go now to Atlanta, where our reporter Billy House, a Bloomberg congressional reporter, uh, is monitoring that particular election. There's also gubernatorial elections, too, that we want to take uh, into account as well. But first, let's just focus on this particular Senate race. Billy, how close is it? Latest polling shows it's neck to neck. And keep in mind, in Georgia, a candidate has to get 50 percent or, or more to win. So uh, with the Democrat Raphael Warnock running against your former football star Herschel Walker, uh, polls are showing them neck and neck around 47 or 48 percent each with a third party candidate pulling in five. So this very well could go a runoff. And if that happens, we're all in limbo until December 6th when that runoff would be held. So when do we think, let's assume that doesn't happen, Billy, when okay. do we think we could get a, a an understanding of the shape of U.S. politics after the midterms? I understand that at kind of 5.30 right. Eastern, we may get some exit poll news. What happens kind of once that once that happens? What, what, is, what does the next 24 hours look like in terms of the information that we're going to get? Well, there's, of, of the 35 Senate seats up for grabs, about five are those that everybody's paying close attention to, as we mentioned, Georgia, Pennsylvania, but also Nevada, Arizona, out west, and New Hampshire. How those sort themselves out, and they're all close races, pretty close, uh, will probably decide the Senate. Then throw into that mix the fact that Georgia may not be decided to December 6th. So you could have a clear picture by tomorrow, or you could have just still confusion and limbo lasting you know, into the week later this week. I do want to get to some of the other uh, Senate races, but before we depart Georgia, um, there's also an enormously tight governor's race between Republican Governor Brian Kemp and Democratic challenger uh, Stacey Abrams. Um, 
how close is this one, and what do we think is going to happen there? Most of the polling shows the, the Republican governor Kemp uh, leading, but uh, Stacey Abrams in some polls has been closing that gap in the last few days, and that could be close, closer than most people think. And, of course, uh, that is a rematch uh, from four years ago, and, and right now it looks like a coin toss as well. Billy, I can't quite believe I'm saying this, but is this election about Donald Trump? Well, a lot of it is, and if it is, uh, even if it isn't, he wants it to be. Uh, I mean, he's the one announced just a day before the election that he might be announcing next week or hinting that he's running for president. So uh, a lot of this is about Trump. A lot of what's happening in the U.S. House is about Trump, and he will. What what a lot of that U.S. House will do in the next session will mm-hmm. cue to what Trump wants it to do. Do you get the impression that it's more pro-Trump or anti-Biden? Well, that's a good question, because here in Georgia, in this Senate race, uh, pretty much the entire attack on the incumbent, Raphael Warnock, who himself won in a runoff in 2021, so he hasn't been around that long, has been has been hit by being too tied to, to uh, the president by almost every uh, Republican official in the state. So that is a big deal here, at least in the South and in Georgia, tying candidates, Democratic candidates, to the president. Billy, how much is this election costing? How much money is being spent on this? Well, in the Georgia, it's huge. It's the most expensive race so far uh, this year. And again, we might go to a runoff. It's over $244 million just in Georgia. I, I don't really know the entire uh, country. Yeah, the totals, like, if if, if Georgia's $244 million, the, 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 the national number must be epic. Huge. Absolutely huge. I agree. Guy doesn't understand the way we do things here, which is fair enough. I we, mean, uh, like, we run elections in six weeks. They're over and done with. They start you, yeah. and they're done. I mean... Yeah, that there's something to definitely be said for that. Or as many have said, like channeling that money into something else might really help the other things. Um, uh, Billy, what 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 other races? Okay, let me ask a different question. I know you're a congressional reporter, but do you get the sense that the White House is appropriately monitoring what today's election means for Biden? Oh, I, I do, and I think they've already started downplaying some of the results. But what's going to mean is, at the very least. Republicans will take the U.S. House, and that will mean divided government, obviously, and that will mean nobody's agenda will get through. And what we're going to see is two years of messaging bills from both sides, yeah. including the president, uh, uh, his his proposals. So there will be a lot of messaging for all eyes on 224, two, I mean 2024, when the White House is up again, and that's what the next two years will be about. If it's bad for Biden, do you think he... Do you think he will be forced into not running? Like he's about to celebrate his 80th birthday. Those have already publicly saying in his party that he should not do so. If this is a disaster here today for Democrats, those voices will only become uh, more animate and more in number. So that is certainly something to keep an eye on. Hey, Billy, thanks a lot. Super appreciate it. Now it's going to be a long couple days for you, Billy House, Bloomberg congressional reporter, reporting to us from Atlanta, Georgia, where there is a very tight Senate race between Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker. Um, results trickling out once polls close tonight, your early morning hours, when we get actual results, I have no idea. It also depends on when mail-in ballots uh, will be counted in certain states, and that depends on what state you're in. It gets very confusing very quickly, so look for rolling headlines uh, over the next few days. Coming up, we'll talk crypto. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. 
Good evening, welcome back. You're listening to The Cape. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. Alex did a fantastic job of summarising what has been taking place in the crypto landscape a little earlier on Bloomberg Television. Now it's my turn. Uh, I hope I live up to her high standards. Because basically what we've had, Alex, is a, a, a drama that kind of kicked off last week, but really kind of started this week in the crypto space regarding Binance and FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried's three-year-old exchange. There was this concern that came out of an article last week that basically pointed to the idea uh, that Sam Bankman-Fried's, let's call it his hedge fund, was too reliant on the token, the FTX token, the FFX token that had been created by SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried. And, and as a result of which, we come through to Monday morning and Binance announces on Twitter that it is potentially going to be exiting its position in that token. That causes a run on that token and causes significant withdrawals from the FTX exchange. What really is shocking is that Binance's decision has now put it in a position where it is now looking like it is going to take over FTX in a huge move that is going to consolidate uh, the crypto space and the exchange space within crypto massively. I'm struggling to get my arms around my head around all of this. It happens very quickly. It feels like the Wild West. Olga Kharif joins us now. She's been writing about this. Let's, Olga, just walk me through what appears to be an incredibly crazy situation and try and make sense of it for me. Absolutely. It is absolutely crazy. So we have essentially CZ, who is the CEO of Binance, and Sam Bankman-Fried, or SBF, uh, the CEO of FTX. They've been sort of butting heads uh, for for a couple of years, uh, even though uh, back in 2019, uh, CZ was actually an investor in FTX, but they are obviously competitors. They've been, uh, you know, uh, they've both been trying to gain share in a market that with very low volatility, meaning that, uh, you know, all exchanges are struggling to uh, to make revenue. And so what we are having here now is that, uh, CZ essentially seized on the opportunity to potentially acquire FTX uh, in a liquidity crunch, which was precipitated in in part by his own sort of tweets and, and his announcement that he would sell a big chunk of um, FTT tokens that he holds after exiting uh, his investment in FTX last year. Mm-hmm. Um is there something fishy about this, or is this a legitimate liquidity save? You know, uh, so so we've seen that time and time again in crypto, where uh, and elsewhere as well. You know, if confidence in a particular token or a particular company is shaken, you know, there can be a, ra- a run on the bank essentially, right? And then uh, there is a crunch and uh, the company in the middle of this bank run is in trouble. And I think this this is what happened here. And I think it will take some time to sort out exactly what happened and yeah. uh, what it all means. And, and you know, part, it's still got a lot of it has got to play out because essentially what's been announced was a non-binding letter of intent to acquire FTX. But Binance still has to do due diligence and things actually have to papers have to be signed <laughs> before, you know, uh, this can actually become a deal. Due diligence. 
I think after Twitter, people were surprised about the fact that that could be happening. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, about where this leaves the exchange space. Binance is now very dominant. Is that going to be a problem? So uh, I'm sure that a lot of people in crypto will view that as as a problem because Binance is already by far sort of the dominant exchange in spot as well as derivatives. And now it's, it's mm-hmm. you know, if it acquires FTX, it will obviously become even more <laughs> dominant. So yeah. uh, definitely that there's there are some concerns about increased yeah. centralization here. Olga, we got to leave it there. I don't envy your job right now unpacking all of this. Uh, Olga Curry, a Bloomberg Crypto reporter, we appreciate you helping us break this down. Apparently, Binance can like walk away whenever they want to from this deal also. Anyway, more in the midterms. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to Cable, Bloomberg DAB, a digital radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson over in London. Okay, we talked a lot about the midterm elections. Now let's look at it with an economic lens here. So uh, Bloomberg Intelligence, um, excuse me, Bloomberg Economics, based on a misery index, which is unemployment and inflation, looks to see a loss of 29 seats for the Democrats in the House. Let's get more on that. Let's get more on the future of what the next two years could bring in terms of the economy. Uh, Anna Wong joins us. She's chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics. Um, Anna, talk to me about that. So what the misery index, how you look at that, and then how that translates to politics. Yeah, so uh, one way to predict uh, voters' outcome is using, um, um, you know, the misery index, uh, which in the past has performed relatively well. For example, in back in 2016, it, the misery, if you predict, like, how, how uh, people vote uh, in the House race or in the, in the U.S. election race, it actually would point to, um, you know, back then that, that, that Hillary Clinton was not elected. So using that mo- same model today, it will tell us that that uh, people are very um, angry about the high inflation in U.S., particularly in red states, where we expect that um, and, uh, for the House race, the, the Republicans will pick up more seats there, there, but just because inflation has actually been even higher in red, red yep. states than blue states. But all in all, that it will point to 29 seats being lost by Democrats. Just to kind of just extrapolate forward, so I'm curious to get your take on this. If inflation comes down between now and 2024, could we expect the exact opposite effect when we go into the general election? Well, not really, because uh, between now and 2024, there's uh, this widely expected recession that might begin, that we think would begin in the third quarter of next year. Um, and um, and the, the unfortunate thing is that the likely outcome from tonight, the most likely outcome is a split Washington, which means that likely the, the Republicans might leverage the debt ceiling issue to force um, Democrats to uh, cut spending next year. And we're estimating the, the debt ceiling issue to arise around exactly around the time when we think a recession could also happen. Mm-hmm. And so that recession could be, we estimate that it could be twice as deep as our baseline, which is a short and shallow one. But if it's twice as deep, if, if um, the debt ceiling issue were to produce a financial volatility volatility that we saw similar to the 2011 debt ceiling standoff. Wait a minute. So you think that we could have a recession that could be twice as bad 
And it, it, because of the lack of support? I think it could be twice as bad because of the debt ceiling standoff, the uncertainty oh, around uh, debt ceiling standoff. But to be sure, this, this the baseline is a short and shallow recession, mm-hmm. right? Let me just, so even uh, Anna, let me yeah. follow on that for a second before before you get too far. But if we get wi- uh, withdrawal of some financial support from D.C. because of either uh, a republic, if we get a really red Congress, for example, does that even play deeper into recession fears? Well, uh, well, for for sure that is. So there are two aspects of this. One is that yes, if there's uh, fiscal withdrawal at a time when the economic downturn is happening, yes, that would deepen the downturn. And the second is just the uncertainty around the debt ceiling could produce a widening of spreads that could actually make a downturn worse. How does the Fed react to that? Well, I think the Fed right now, uh, this number one objective is to bring inflation down. So if, if if inflation expectations are actually as anchored as they think it is, then when an economic downturn happens next year, as if, 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 if it does happen, inflation would come down. Anna? Yes. Oh, we kind of yeah. lost you there. Um, oh. Yeah. yeah. You, you, you were saying at the end that uh, if inflation does wind up coming down a bit? Yes. So if if um, if there's a recession and next year, and if inflation expectations are anchored, then inflation should come down, and the Fed would be able to kind of step back and just let um, you know keep the rates higher for longer and begin to cut in 2024. Um, not to jump the gun over the U.S. midterms, but we get CPI on Thursday. What do you think we get? I think it's going to show a year-over-year headline CPI of seven. which would be lower than the 8.2% from the previous month. Core inflation would probably also decelerate from the previous month because we do see sharper and more broad-based disinflation coming from the goods sectors. Although I I also expect to see that services inflation continue to be robust. In terms of the, the sort of the bigger picture here, uh, you talked about the potential for a significant uh, sort of significant downdraft for the U.S. economy because of the, the debt ceiling and various other issues. The Fed having to react to that, but nevertheless, rates staying relatively high for a fairly long time. What kind of trajectory after all of this is the U.S. economy going to be on? I, are there is this creative destruction? I, I remember very vividly going through 2000. I remember the, the financial crash. I remember the catharsis that came afterwards. I'm wondering, I'm, I'm just starting to think about, Anna, kind of what comes next for the U.S. economy. It has a productivity issue, clearly has an inflation issue right now. But the bigger picture is that that we need innovation and we need an energy transition. We need all of these things to happen. Is that what we're building up to? I'm trying to find silver linings right now, and I'm really struggling. And I'm wondering whether that could be one of them. Well, you know, you know, if you think about long-term trajectory of the economy, what you need, as you said, is productivity growth, uh, which will spill into inflation, uh, innovation, and also for firms to want to invest. Right? Unfortunately, the two fact, the factors that underpin and encourage those things are absent right now. You need. Yep. Certainty. You need no uncertainty for firms to feel comfortable about making sunk costs, right? Right now, we don't have that. The political environment is such that you don't know what will happen next. 
Second, yep. the Fed is raising rates so high that it makes interest rate borrowing costs very uncertain. Productivity firms are not laying off people, and while output is decreasing, the productivity is going okay. down. I'm just wondering what's going to make America great again because I have a very, very sneaky feeling it's too soon, man. that we're going to be hearing a lot about that too very, soon. very soon. <laughs> Maybe even next week. Um, Anna, thank you very much indeed. I uh, hope you enjoyed the show. This was The Cable. Plenty of great coverage coming up on the midterms. This is Bloomberg.